I will rise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin built there of clay and wattles made. So you're probably saying to yourself, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a show about Henry David Thoreau. Why are you playing a song that's the Lake Isle of Innisfree set to music? Um, and the re- reason is because Yeats's vision is very close to that of Thoreau's. But also, it turns out Yeats was kind of a Thoreau fanboy. Uh, and uh, one scholar, I think it was Christine O'Connor, uh, wrote about going to some Yeats exhibit that had all of his stuff at it. And she writes, uh, lingering before Yeats, uh, lingering before Yeats's opened copy of Walden, I noticed a faint circular impression left by a glass that must have once rested on it. Somehow this ring stain struck me. It was an ordinary yet intimate detail, likely left by Yeats itself. I love that. That's very, very Yeats. So Henry David Thoreau, this is all because of an email we got from a listener quite a while ago who I think it had come up in the reading the Midnight Library and this person had heard all, knew all kinds of kind of negative stuff about Thoreau and wanted us to deal with it. Well, you know, in a way, Thoreau is perfectly suited for the present moment. During the pandemic, when people were isolating, when people were baking and gardening, when the fragility of the supply chain was exposed, Thoreau did kind of rise up from the forest floor of Concord and, and he was recrowned this household god. But in a different way, Thoreau is disastrously suited for the modern moment when reputations are debated and and set ablaze by a handful of tweets written by people with spotty information and no regard for context whatsoever. The social media age kind of loves to pounce on inconsistencies, and Thoreau had a lot of inconsistencies. Of course, as his as Emerson, who was kind of Frank Sinatra to his Dean Martin in the Concord or Rat Pack, the Transcendentalist Rat Pack, which I think makes Margaret Fuller Shirley MacLaine, which I really like. But, you know, anyway, Emerson said uh, consistency is the, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. So we've got some big minds here to help us uh, work out all these problems. Uh, with us is Alex Beam, an author, journalist, former columnist, current contributor to the Boston Globe, author of many books, including American Crucifixion. Also, uh, just just uh, noted in passing, Alex and I will be spending uh, all of eternity together after we die because we went on a tour of a newly built Mormon temple together. This wasn't explained to me before we went on the tour. I, not necessarily a choice I would have made, spending all of eternity with Alex. Uh, but that's the way it goes. Uh, also joining us is Laura Dasso-Walls, a professor emeritus of English at the University of Notre Dame and author of Henry David Thoreau, A Life, which Robert Richardson called the best all-around volume about Thoreau ever written. I believe that's what he called it. And that's no small potatoes because Bob Richardson— uh, actually wrote a really good biography of Henry David Thoreau. So when he says you wrote the best one, uh, he's uh, steering praise away from himself, which actually was kind of characteristic of, of him too. So we've got to get going here, and I've babbled along long enough. So La- Laura Dasu-Walls, maybe you could get us started here. I, I mean, your book is is positive 
uh, towards Henry David Thoreau without overlooking uh, a few wrinkles in the fabric. Um, make the case for him uh, as uh, as that kind of powerful figure, that influencer, not just of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, but Emma Goldman and Tolstoy, and we just said Yeats, and I mean, kind of responsible responsible for at least one Linda Ronstadt song. Um, so, so make make the pro Thoreau case in a nutshell. Well, thank you, Colin. One thing for sure, uh, Thoreau got noticed, which is really interesting because this all happened uh, for the most part after his death. So somebody's out there putting his message out in the world. And now here we are uh, uh, celebrating. Uh, my biography came out for his 200th birthday and seemed to, he had has more fans than ever before. So how to make the case quickly. I wanted to subtitle the biography, Henry David Thoreau, A Whole Human Life. My publisher decided to go for simplicity, which makes sense for Thoreau. But the intent of my biography was to try to make the case for Thoreau as, and the phrase is his own, living a whole human life so that we know the Thoreau who comes down to us through his writing and a kind of aspirational Thoreau, I wanted to fill in the backstory and the sort of richness and wealth out of which that life came. So there's a kind of dual purpose here. In terms of making the case for him, Thoreau was, one way to put it, uh, in terms of contemporary relevance, on the verge of what we today would call the Anthropocene, the the changeover from a a much more uh, less commercialized society toward a much uh, less less individualized society, more of a mass society uh, with heavy industrialization, heavy uh, ecological destruction. Thoreau observed all this. He went to Walden Pond to observe it and tried to think through both what are the conditions that are changing the world that we live in and the planet that we live with, and how should we both individually and socially respond to this change? And if we imagine ourselves into the future, what might the future look like? And are we so sure that what we're doing now is the best way to create a future for our posterity? Of course, these are questions that are very dire and very urgent right now, because now we really do sense that change is needed or the road that we're going down will not take us to a good place. Thoreau foresaw that way back in the 1840s. And in that sense, he becomes a a very early warning. I think of his position as a watchtower. And he's trying to warn us of conditions coming over the horizon and tell us that uh, uh, both the natural world and the the human social world will not be good places to be unless we start thinking through more carefully our ethical response uh, to to the world and to each other. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but uh, I I think that area, that kind of north end of uh, of the pond and the and the surrounding area at that time was far from being a forest primeval. It was probably about as denuded of trees as it was ever going to be. Charcoal burners had gotten in there. They were cutting down trees for railroad ties. Uh, I I think Emerson's hope and expectation was that one of the things Thoreau would do on his land, on Emerson's land, was plant some trees. Which Thoreau did. And you're exactly right. People think of it as primeval woods, and it wasn't at all. It hadn't been for many thousands of years, of course. This was a very carefully managed landscape. 
uh, from the indigenous Americans who had been there for thousands of years before. By the time Thoreau was at Walden Pond, the forest he knew in his childhood was long gone. And it was right in that moment in about 1850s when he was writing Walden that most of the trees were gone. So he's writing a kind of elegy or a kind of uh, a wish, a dream of what the world was and could be again, but it wasn't reflecting the world that he actually saw, which gave him great pain. So, Alex, I mean, one of the, we should say that Alex Beam in his many years as an esteemed columnist for the Boston Globe, one of Alex's specialties was writing columns that would prick the sensibilities and assault the shibboleths of whatever remains of the Boston Brahmin world. Uh, so uh, you've had some interesting things to say about Thoreau, but maybe we should begin with, you know, one of the ultimate ironies, which is Walden Pond and Concord, you know, having become big tourist attractions. I mean, in a way, <laughs> a whole other desecration has taken place of that area because it's swarming with people. Yeah, that's actually a, a very interesting point. And I, I should say parenthetically, I I would much rather res- listen to Professor Walls discussing Thoreau than have to read that nonsense myself. He's incredibly <laughs> articulate and makes a selling case. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's that ridiculous euphemism. Um, but yeah, Walden Pond is extremely stressed and has been for 10 or 15 years. Um, there's been a sort of jihad to kick the swimmers out of Walden Pond. There was a subculture of um, early morning swimmers. There's been something of a crackdown on them. Uh, I, you know, I used to try to go there maybe 15 years ago, and the park, you know, the parking lot's full by 9 a.m., um, I alerted you. I know you. I know everyone on this phone call, at least, is aware of the. There was the whole kind of. This really is ancient history, but you know, Don Henley, the front man for the Eagles, was going to quote unquote save a portion of the land around the pond, um, which which I, I suppose he did. But I'm um, you know the Concord dump is um, almost immediately adjacent. So yeah, it is an irony. Um, if if indeed. Um, you know, Thoreau was was broadcasting an alarm of this kind of uh, tension on our lands, and I'm, I I don't know his work well enough to confirm that, but um, yeah, it's extremely ironic. Right. The Walden Pond, I think at one point had, I think maybe still does have one of the highest concentrations of human urine of any pond or lake oh, in Massachusetts. Oh, no. So we're number one. We're number one. So, um, so. Uh, Laura Walls, um, one of the many indignities uh, heaped upon Thoreau in modern life is the fact that in the current uh, series on Apple Plus, Dickinson, uh, he is portrayed by the comedian uh, uh, John Mulaney, who kind of pulls out some of the worst uh, thoughts that people have had or, or ways in which Thoreau has come down to us as a less than appetizing person. Uh, I think they even go there with the whole idea of his mother doing his laundry. But let's just uh, hear, this is actually uh, a little clip uh, from the series Dickinson, which is about Emily Dickinson. Everyone really makes it big during their lifetime. They become insufferable. Emily Dickinson didn't get to become big in her lifetime. Henry David Thoreau did, and he was insufferable. You're a dick. Never meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. So uh, we need to deal with this a little bit, uh, Laura. There's just a way in which uh, Thoreau has been kind of thrust at us uh, as this guy who 
wasn't any fun, uh, was didactic, uh, was uh, cut off from from humankind rather than actively participating in humankind. It's not just mean old Alex Beam. It's also Catherine Schultz did a, a pretty vicious uh, takedown, which in the physical copy of The New Yorker that it ran, the headline was pun scum. So, so I mean, what what about all this? I mean, <laughs> see, I've already asked you to sort of paint uh, a favorable picture of Thoreau, but let's kind of address some of this stuff. And we, we we may have to begin. I don't know why, but the whole idea of his mom doing his laundry once in a while has really stuck to him like a piece of toilet paper on his shoe. Well said. Yeah, I agree. And um, Rebecca Solnit wrote a wonderful piece on on this where she asks, why is it that we expect him to do his laundry? Would you please... Uh, name, and I don't remember, she says one or three or five, but male writers of his stature who made a point of doing their own laundry. Um, Thoreau, of course, um, it, it turns out that he did try. He took his laundry to Walden Pond uh, and took some stones and tried to scrub it and tried to figure out, and I'm sorry, that's not a practical way to, to do your clothes. So he ended up bringing it back. And of course, his mother didn't do his laundry. The Irish servant did the laundry. His mother ran a boarding house, which was Thoreau's home in town, which is one reason he was so anxious to get to Walden Pond, because a boarding house uh, with 10 or 12 or sometimes upward of of 16 or so people living in it is quite a bustling, busy place. And he had chores to do there, which is one reason why he made sure to go home uh, once or twice a week to tend to his family chores. He just doesn't tell us that in Walden. So, uh, gosh, where to begin? On the one hand, let's say this, Thoreau was uh, not somebody who needed to be liked by everybody. And he was somebody who didn't like everybody, which is perhaps unusual. Um, And I actually have never expected him to like me uh, or at times I don't particularly like him, although I love him like a brother. So that's one thing is that uh, he was quite capable of being curt and rude and, and impatient with people and often defensive. He was profoundly introverted. Think of the most introverted person you know and sort of you know square that and you have thorough. There is even some talk, and I am not qualified to judge this, that he might have been well, on on the autism spectrum, or at least neuroatypical, which is an interesting way to think about um, uh, some of his differences. Late in life, a short life to be sure, he said he, people were so nice to him when he was dying that he said, I had no idea. I would not have been so mean to everybody if I'd known how genuinely good everyone really is, which just breaks my heart. So there's that side of his personality um, and his uh, perceptive, the way he perceived the world and processed it. Um, On the other side, the family side, uh, yes, he was a beloved member of a large and loving family. Uh, He never left because he couldn't imagine himself living anywhere else. Uh, He left briefly and that just underscored his thought that he had to be there in Concord with his family, part of that great expanded family, uh, uh, you know, kind of a wonderful little collective working in the pencil factory and helping out with the boarding house and so on. So that's the side that he doesn't write about because he projects a kind of ideal self. But the um, question of the family life and his friends in town, 
Walden was right next to town. If you go there, it's, it's about a 20 minute walk um, if you're a fast walker. And he went into town every other, every third day or so to visit with friends and to, to see his family. And because he loved his friends and he loved his family and he was beloved in return. And of course, if, uh, if that's a problem, then I'm a little alarmed by that interpretation. Well, that's a that's an interesting point. And so, Alex Beam, th- there is a sort of sense in which Thoreau catches a little bit of crap for being some kind of, you know, precursor to Ted Kaczynski sitting out there in the woods and like not having anything good to eat or drink and kind of getting into that and, and rejecting technology, rejecting every possible advance in technology, railroad no good, telegraph no good. St- sounds very Unabomber manifesto. But he also takes a lot of crap for not being Kaczynski enough, right? <laughs> he takes a lot of crap for going into town every couple of days and like just hanging out with normal people. Yeah, that, um, I hadn't ever, I hadn't made that direct uh, connection to, to Kaczynski, um, who I had a bizarre obsession with a while back. Um, we'll discuss I, all. Of, we'll, we'll discuss all of this, this stuff in the afterlife, Alex. We've, we have thousands yeah, and thousands so of years yeah, ahead of us together. There's a Ted Kaczynski archive, actually, in the anarchist uh, collection at the University of Michigan. That's probably where Thoreau's touch would be. I, um, we haven't mentioned, of course, him burning down the forest. I'm sure there's a great explanation, you know, slash uh, remediate, you know, sort of ex- exculpatory uh, angle on that. I was sort of interested in this idea, and Professor uh, Walls would might that he was, um, you know, well known in his time because um, among the very few authors who've had their books remaindered, and I'm sure that doesn't include Colin McEnroe. You know, Thoreau's the patron saint of remaindered books because of one of his most famous quotes is, I'm, I'm sitting in a room surrounded by, you know, 1,300 volumes of my own creation. And I think, you know, I'm perfectly willing to be corrected on the facts, but basically he's talking about unsold copies of Walden. I think the printing was something like 2,000. They sold a few hundred. This is, of course, war- warms every author's heart um, who's seen... Uh, printings go awry. So I'm not, I, I'm very curious. I, everything I find myself talking about Thoreau, and even in this conversation, is we're talking about the penumbra of Thoreau, the the shadow cast forward in time. Um, you know, I guess I've made the case elsewhere that um, uh, I'm, I'm far from convinced that he, you know, quote unquote, spoke for America the way he's come to have been assigned a megaphone by residents of the 20th and 21st century. So, yeah, uh, Laura, I mean, one thing I think we could maybe all agree on is that, you know, the the first, I don't know, 100 pages or so of of Walden are not easy to read. I mean, there are ways in which uh, Thoreau is a really exciting prose stylist at at various moments. But uh, if he's having problems with remainders, it could be just because it wasn't that much fun. Well, yeah, and it, by the way, just a correction, it, it was actually his first book, A Week on the Concord Merrimack Rivers, that uh, was remaindered, okay. and yes, all the copies went to a study in the in third floor attic. He had to carry them up there himself. <laughs> it was, the stairs were tall and narrow, and uh, he was very aware of those unsold books, uh, and it actually was instructive for him because um, the book wasn't marketed, and uh, it had 
good reviews, but when Walden came out, uh, he knew what not to do. And Walden actually did fine. Um, it's, it was briefly out of print, but, uh, uh, but was reprinted as soon as um, he died and has been in print ever since, et cetera. Anyway, wow, where to start? Um, yeah, I don't think, I think he didn't mean to speak for America, but, but in a sense to America against certain aspects of America. So let's take technology. This was a very sort of go ahead. Uh, technology is the future and anything that's technological is good. And let's create a technological utopia. And Thoreau was uh, himself an inventor. He loved technology. He invented the number two yellow pencil. Uh, you don't know that because the system he used was taken over by uh, uh, a big company and pretty soon uh, that they were the ones manufacturing the pencils that we all remember from our childhood. Um, and he invented the machinery to make it. Uh, Thoreau was fascinated by machinery and very, very good. He's the kind of guy that you called to repair something. Um, he's fascinated by railroad engines. He made a point of touring factories because he wanted to understand engines and how they work. What he was against was worshiping technology for its own sake. And he felt that technology, uh, uh, if you sort of fetishize it, would take over. You had to always remember the human relationship to technology. So when he was touring factories, he talked to the workers and he was both admiring of their dexterity and their skill, but he was also worried that the, uh, the labor issue was uh, uh, demolishing their freedom uh, as free uh, uh, human beings. And these were mostly women, he's, he's speaking to the textile mills at Lowell and so on. So gosh, um, you know, that sense of standing up and, and uh, kind of saying, wait a minute, are we so sure technology and the, the railroad, for instance, is, is this uh, uh, to be worshiped or is it to be like, you know, you can ride the railroad, but think about what you're doing. He'd be the kind of person today who'd say, okay, yeah, you, know, you can have a cell phone, but why don't you turn it off a lot of the time? <laughs> <laughs> right. I should say that in the third segment of the show, we are going to talk to somebody who uh, helped design a Thoreau video game, which he also would have yeah. really hated, but which is really kind of cool. Yeah. So Thoreau you know, would have loved it, by yes. the way. Thoreau would have be delighted by that video game, believe okay. it or not. Yeah. This is art. It's an art form. And Thoreau was about creating art. What do you do? You know, if you're anti-technology or you're guarded, like, I don't know so much about technology, he would say, well, use it. Uh, uh, to, to create and to develop and to become, you know, more, more fully human in the world. What, one thing I think we do know that he would have done about uh, cell phones or smartphones was probably talk a little bit about the workers who assembled them, because I, I think, uh, right. Laura, that uh, he would say things like, you know, uh, for every, you know, X number of miles you go on the railroad, that's a dead Irishman who worked on, on yeah. these things. There was kind of a sense that of pay attention to where the stuff that you are using and enjoying your so-called advances came from and over whose dead body, literally, uh, they traveled. He does say that literally. You know, you're, the, rail, the, the railroad tracks run over the bodies of the dead Irishmen who built that railroad, and you should know that, and, and you should change the way you think about railroads. Um, yeah, and I think that's, and this is all in that long, very contentious, uh, cantankerous first opening chapter of Walden, which is a tough read. I tough. mean, nobody likes to be, you know, uh, chided, uh, reminded of all these sort of ugly undersides and, and all the things we don't want to think about. 
And he's there sort of wagging his finger in our faces saying, do you understand what it, you know, the, the, the damage you do to yourself, your life and to the lives of others by living this way? And it's really a tough read. Um, it takes a certain kind of person to, to make it through that first chapter and keep going. Um, the interesting thing there is that it's, the book is, it, it is the product of the angry young man who, yes, he accidentally let the fire get out of control and the, took out a big chunk of forest. Um, and uh, he took some real ugliness uh, from his friends and neighbors for that and really felt, I mean, it made a deep impression on him. So he's angry, he's guilty, he's shamed, he's offsides, he can't, you know, he's tried uh, lots of different jobs, uh, his sense that something is awry both with himself and the world. He's angry. He goes to the pond angry. And boy, is that first chapter full of anger. And the rest of the book is a healing. The second chapter takes this turn. Let's sit with the causes of our anger and the causes of, of you know, illness in our society and evil in the world and try to under, that's what we'll do here at Walden and, you know, bring the reader along. And then the whole book moves us through this process of rethinking everything around him and coming to this grand uh, uh, moment of healing and uh, hope at the end. So it starts angry and furious and alienated and then moves us through a kind of ceremony of, uh, of resituating ourselves in the reality of, the, of our world and uh, orienting ourselves <laughs> to hope so, so laura hope, laura you're gonna yeah. hang out with me in the next seg segment but i only have alex sure, for a little yeah. bit more because he has to go sculling or whatever it is uh that uh, you do with your time these days alex beam but you know just to sort of build on something we were talking about before uh you know i think that there is even in thoreau's aversion to technology you know he has that whole thing about the transatlantic cable and perhaps the first news that will leak through into the broad, flapping American ear will be that Princess Adelaide has the whooping cough, which raises the possibility he may have inspired uh, guys and dolls as well. But, um, but you know, there is sort of a thing where I think in the modern moment, we don't entirely enjoy all the technology. There's, I was just listening to uh, Emily St. John Mandel uh, um, talking to Ezra Klein about the idea when, you know, when she writes something like Station Eleven, she's really kind of tapping into a, a sense that we wouldn't mind having less technology. It doesn't entirely make us happy. So I don't know. Play with that idea a little bit, Alex. I, I don't know. I I, I feel bad. I, I'm kind of impatient with, <laughs> and maybe patience is, is like the problem between people who are interested in spending time with Thoreau and the people who aren't. I mean, and I apologize for not answering your question, although that's certainly a politician's trick to answer a question that was not asked. I mean, while Professor Walls was talking, I was skimming Thoreau's plea for Captain John Brown, and it just reads to me like a just complete fictional fabrication, you know, hypocritical nonsense where he's defending a man who led his sons to behead unarmed civilians in Kansas and making this eloquent case for it. I mean... Why are we talking about him in, in such hushed and pious tones? Um, you know, technology, I think I politely disagree with you, Colin. I mean, 
Emily St. John Mandela is an unbelievable writer. And yes, technology makes everybody a tiny bit jittery. I mean, Facebook being the classic example, um, where if you read the New York Times or the Atlantic Magazine, you know, you think it's a conspiracy to establish world dominance on the part of some kid who got kicked out of Exeter. But in fact, you know, tens and if not hundreds of millions of people, including you and I, are connecting ideas on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I'm kind of having my mini Vesuvius of, of impatience with a lot of these polite arguments. All right. Well, that was vintage well, Alex luckily, B. It, luckily, I'm about to go off the air. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Alex Beam is going to go sculling. Uh, he's the author of many books, including American Crucifixion, uh, still a current uh, regular contributor to the Boston Globe. Uh, he's going to leave us. Uh, Professor Walls and I are going to be back together uh, on the other side of this Just break. Some old wild shirts and a couple of pairs of pants, which nobody really wanted to touch. Mama come in, she picked up a book and Papa asked her what it was. Someone else asked, what do you care? Papa said, well, just because. Then he started to take back the clothes and hang them. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. All right, we're back. We're talking Henry David Thoreau, um, and we're doing that right now with Laura Dasu Walls, professor emeritus of English at the University of Notre Dame and author of Henry David Thoreau, A Life, among other books. I apologize for how short this segment's going to be. I need to leave a little bit of time for the aforementioned video game. But, uh, Laura, there's a couple areas I would love to get into with you. One of them, because I think it's actually something, it's one of these other things that doesn't come out that much. The other thing that I think, correct me again if I'm wrong, could be said about this area where he's living at the time of Walden is that the other people living there are kind of outcasts. They are uh, freemen and free women, uh, freed slaves. They are Irish laborers. They are people who are not welcome in the society uh, of, Bo- of nearby Boston. Uh, that, that Thoreau really has positioned himself. He may be a 20-minute walk from town, but where he is is where people live who really aren't even welcome in other places. 
That's right. And by the time he's there, uh, he remembers many of them from childhood uh, into his earliest adulthood. But by the time he's actually building his house there, they're gone. And so part of what one of the chapters in Walden, uh, former inhabitants, he remembers them, recollects them, and he actually has done quite a bit of research trying to recover their lives. And these are uh, uh, freed slaves, uh, uh, poor people, immigrants, who each of them has a story that he tries to tell. And so his question is, well, first of all, why didn't this little collective form its own little thriving town itself, kind of a, you know, uh, a little neighbor village to Concord? Um, and he imagines himself founding a new town, a kind of utopian uh, uh, collective. And that's actually seriously what he thought his house might become. It didn't work out that way. Uh, and, and the other aspect of that is, is the chance to tell of the social history of the pond in terms of its, you know, these wild spaces or, or, you know, this, again, we said earlier, cut over land because it was utilitarian. The pond was where kids went fishing and swimming and so on, a uh, long tradition of that. So the question of, um, oh, what are the, um, now I lost my train of thought, well, sorry. Well, let me, get, let me just direct you in, in a, a parallel direction. The thing that I think also comes through to me now, which I'm not sure I got, like, let's say, in college all those many years ago, is that, I mean, I think Thoreau kind of sometimes gets the rap of being maybe all transcendentalists do, of kind of living inside his head a little bit. I mean, he's clearly consciously becoming the embodiment of his own ideas. He is enacting his own set of beliefs in the way that he's living. But I think there's this sort of this other idea. Well, he's just thinking about a lot of stuff. But my sense now is that he kind of is rolling up his sleeves and getting to know some of these people, people who aren't well-born. He is interested in the plight of the Irish. He is genuinely interested in the plight of Native Americans. And I think not just on the printed page, but like getting out there and talking to them. Yeah, definitely more and more so. And it's something that grows on him. Uh, the more he knows, the more he wants to know, and the more he seeks out, uh, yes, the marginalized people. And this was the, the, the sense that I was driving at. The Walden Pond at this point was where, where you went if you had no money. It was sort of, it was the land nobody cared about. So it was like the wrong side of the tracks, the, the, uh, uh, the wasteland uh, on the edge of town that you just sort of shoved all, all the stuff you didn't want to think about. And so he goes there and pays attention to all that. And it becomes, uh, as he meets some of these people um, uh, and has these conversations with them, he starts to, to think more about their lives and what kinds of alternatives they might offer and, and perhaps sympathy you know, trying to raise awareness of so-and-so needs help. Can we make sure that, uh, you know, this child has a proper coat, for instance, because uh, he's going to school and bare feet in the winter, uh, needs new shoes. I mean, little, little charitable moments like that, but larger, this whole notion of, uh, number one, uh, uh, defending, um, gosh, uh, we haven't spoken of slavery, and this is America in the midst of the pre-Civil War crisis of slavery, and this is why he's defending John Brown, because he's desperate for a solution that will end the violence uh, against enslaved Americans. And then the other, of course, the Irish, the Irish immigrant laborers became a cause that he took up, and the Native American, again, he went up to Maine, um, 
especially a second and third trips up to Maine, uh, in order to understand more deeply uh, the lives of the Penobscot who were living uh, in, in, in traditional, their traditional homelands, pursuing their traditional life ways. And this was the direction that Thoreau was pursuing uh, when he caught the uh, final bout of tuberculosis that killed him. So we don't know what all that was becoming, but mm -hmm. we do have a record uh, in his writings. So, um, you know, in that sense, he felt marginalized himself, and he did tend to uh, identify with the more marginalized, even though, as I said before, doesn't mean that he liked everybody, was nice to everybody. <laughs> so, hey, I've got one last question for you, and I, sure. I, this is a question about which you can and have given uh, full-length lectures about. So I apologize for the fact that I literally have four minutes for us to talk about this. But, uh, you know, there's a way in which the women behind Thoreau, like, as was so often the case in, in so many of these scenarios, and I should say, just for bona fides sake, that was quite a few years ago, but we did a big episode of Mar about Margaret Fuller. Margaret Fuller was like the the action hero of this whole group. I mean, she's like the first woman war correspondent, and all kinds of stuff. But but there were women in Thoreau's life, women in Thoreau's family, who helped him be who he became. And and maybe just in what is now three minutes, you can kind of sketch that out a little bit. Okay, Margaret Fuller first. I think. She and Thoreau had uh, a, a good, close relationship. Uh, he kind of a big sister, a little brother relationship. And she gave him the best advice about writing and becoming himself that anybody did. Uh, and so without, I don't know that we'd have Thoreau without Fuller. Uh, we also wouldn't have Thoreau without uh, Cynthia Thoreau, his mother, uh, who was a, a, a brilliant, vivid, strong personality. And, uh, you know, she was one of the town do-gooders, right? Always getting into social causes and trying to make the world a better place. And, uh, you know, part of the Anti-Slavery Society, one of the founding members. Um, and so uh, that got the, the whole tone of the family was set by Cynthia's activism, which uh, uh, the two Thoreau sisters, uh, his elder sister, Helen, uh, was his moral lodestar. She actually became friends with Frederick Douglass. And, and uh, if her health had been better, she would have been much more uh, uh, better known as uh, an abolitionist herself. But then uh, his little sister, uh, Sophia, everybody called her Henry in skirts and said, you know, she was like a twin. Uh, and what have we lost by not having more about Sophia's uh, life? Uh, they would go on excursions together, walks, and she adored her brother, loved his writing, and, and after, after Thoreau died, she's the one who made sure that his writings would pass on uh, to future generations. Without her, I don't think we'd know who he was. So not only did she help him and, and sort of, you know, uh, be, the, be the sister that he needed uh, during his life, she was the one who made sure that the papers came down to us intact and uh, uh, in, in good shape, such that uh, and collected people around his reputation and protected him and, and uh, you know, uh, made sure we understood uh, the worth and value of her brother as a writer. Laura Dessou Walls, I could talk to you for much longer about all this, uh, but it's a one hour radio show, unfortunately. Uh, pro Professor Emeritus of, of English at University of Notre Dame and author of Henry David Thoreau, A Life, among other books. Thank you for your time today. We're going to take a break. We promised you a video game. I don't even like video games, but here we go.
Did anybody get the musical joke before? Because like when I was, we were planning the show this morning, I was saying, well, we have to play different drum. The Linda Stone Ponies, Linda Ronsat too. See, different drum, different drummer. I, I feel like these things just fly by people. <laughs> But I was very excited about that idea. Uh, all right. We're going to talk uh, about video games, a particular video game. But before we do that, uh, time to thank Dylan Rays. He's uh, on the control board, in the control room, whatever it is that people who are in control do. He is doing it right now. Uh, and our senior producer, Lily Tyson, is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, and now joining us uh, is Tracy Fullerton, a professor and director of the, ga- of the Game Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California and the designer and director of... Walden, a game. Uh, Tracy Fullerton, welcome to our show. Hi, it's great to be here. So, uh, you know, Laura was saying uh, during her time that uh, her book came out to coincide with the 200th centennial of uh, of Thoreau. I, I think that this game kind of was timed the same way, right? It was, exactly. Uh, I wish I'd had Laura's book while I was working on the game. Uh, I had Richardson's, um, and uh, I loved reading Laura's book uh, as as it came out uh, post the launch of the game. And and so tell us, uh, just give us the kind of structure of the game. If I were playing the game, what would I be doing? You play as Thoreau and you uh, essentially go down to the pond to live simply in nature. So it is a loose adaptation of the book. It starts in summer when he went down to build his cabin and it ends in the spring at that time of healing that Laura was referring to. It goes through eight seasons because um, Thoreau didn't believe that four seasons were granular enough to really describe the changes that nature went through. So it goes through eight seasons of change and each of the seasons will bring new challenges for the player as they live in the woods, uh, but also not only uh, in terms of living in the woods, but also in terms of um, the complex relationships that you find uh, that he has with his mentor, Emerson, with his family, uh, represented by Sophia, and um, uh, with uh, his colleagues uh, and and friends, including Margaret Fuller, Horace Greeley, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and, and others who make an appearance in the game. Yeah. You know, we didn't get to mention Lawrence, uh, Horace Greeley at the beginning. Horace Greeley is kind of responsible, Laura believes, I think, for some of the almost prejudices we have uh, against, uh, against Thoreau. Uh, he was kind of the publicist for the book, and he ginned up this whole story, this really kind of Kaczynski-like uh, version of Thoreau uh, in the years prior to the release of the book. And then uh, that kind of stuck uh, in a weird way, in a way that first impressions uh, often do. So when you say that we're going to have some kind of contact with Sophia or Bronson Alcott or Horace Greeley or, or Margaret Fuller or Nathaniel Hawthorne, what's going to happen? Voices come to us while we're playing and, and tell us stuff? They're letters, so um, letters shortened and adapted from writings and um, and actual letters uh, where uh, they will send you on different quests. So just as an example, Bronson Alcott will ask you to uh, help with uh, aiding fugitives along the Underground Railroad. Um, and uh, Horace Greeley will ask you to write a little shorter for the uh, the magazines um, in a better style than than you know, the, he thinks you're writing in. Uh, Emerson uh, uh, will ask you to help him with some research he's doing um, for an article. Uh, all of these people will generally correspond through letters. So it's a first-person shooter game, but it's bean shoots uh, instead of uh, <laughs> instead of guns. Feel free to use that joke. Um, <laughs> and um, and and so do do you get a chance while you're playing? I apologize for not having played it. I'm just useless uh, with with all kinds of video games. But uh, do you get a chance to kind of 
be Thoreau personally? In other words, you hear these letters and stuff like that, and then do you sort of think, well, okay, I'm Thoreau now, so I'll decide to do X or Y? Yes. I mean, so you, it's a first person game. Um, yes, no shooting, um, um, just growing beans, um, you know, building your cabin, fishing, uh, you know, doing sort of the daily tasks of living in the woods and you get to make choices. One of the big themes of the, of the game is about time. Uh, and I think uh, Thoreau was very conscious about how we spend our time and he questioned a lot of how we, um, express our values through how we spend our times. And uh, so in the game, there are many things that you could be doing, many people that you could be helping uh, who will send you requests for help. And how you choose to use that precious resource that you have, which is time, uh, whether it be to simply isolate yourself in, in our virtual woods or to go and engage with uh, activism around slavery and abolitionism or the Mexican-American War, et cetera. You can make these choices. So when I say you play as thorough, you play in the situation, but you really make the choices yourself. The um, I, I'm sure everybody who talks to you brings up the obvious paradox here, uh, which would be, although at the end of his life, I don't know how well known this is, Thoreau did have briefly dial-up internet. I think he had an AOL account. But, <laughs> um, but the, you know, if, if in fact you're trying to decide what to do with your time, uh, your, your, what, what you're going to do with your one wild and precious life, um, Thoreau might have said, don't play video games. So I, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, everyone brings it up. It's a, it's an irony. But then I have to say, you know, it is a similar irony to, say, staying in the house and reading a book or, um, you know, watching a movie. If we watched a movie about Thor, would that be considered ironic or a waste of time? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, so, you know, games are a medium. They do not replace the thing. In fact, the great hope for the game would be that it would inspire you, uh, say, perhaps as a young person, to go and read Thoreau or to go for a walk in the woods if you happen to be, you know, able to do that. But if you're not, you can take a walk in these virtual woods and you can try to understand um, the situation that, that Thoreau had put himself into. Uh, and, and I hope that it will inspire you uh, to think more about how you spend your time. Now, the game is not a massively huge game. It takes approximately six hours to play. So it's about, it takes about the same amount of time to play the game as it takes to read the Book of Walden. And um, one hopes that that's a sufficient amount of time to start to understand uh, you know, the kind of ideas and philosophies that, that Thoreau is representing and to then go off and live your life and, and bring some of that uh, decision-making about time and values back to your own life. So we probably have time for one more question. And I guess that would be, how did your relationship with Thoreau um, shift or alter? I mean, there's a lot of research that went into this. I think that's very obvious to anybody who's listening that you didn't just decide to slap some images up there. Uh, you really you really got to know as much about this person as you possibly could. So, so what happened over the course of making the game in terms of how you view this guy? It's interesting because Laura said this earlier in the show about, you know, a whole human life, right? And I think that I, like many people, had read his writings and I'd had at different times in my life different feelings. Like when I read him as a child, I was focused on the war of the ants and the all the stories about the animals and the, and the plants uh, and sort of life in the woods. And then as I grew older, I became more interested uh, in activism. And of course, I became more critical, like everyone does. And, uh, you know, the laundry question. And <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think 
in making the game, I began to understand some of the human tragedies and the human concerns uh, of, of Thoreau as a, as a person. And, you know, one of the stories that really touched me was the death of his brother, um, which had occurred uh, several years before he went to the woods. And what it, what it means to me is that, that, that this trip to the woods was, as Laura pointed out, yes, one of anger, but I think also one of grief. And, and for me, um, dealing with grief alongside the building of this game in my own life, I started to realize how this timeout that he gave himself was also a part of a healing process for him in regards to, to losing that, that person in his life who was so important. Yeah, his brother John. He's also the reason he got out of teaching. His brother John died of tetanus, or I think what they called lockjaw, uh, at the time. And it's is one of the reasons he goes there uh, is to 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 the woods to grieve and and process that, as you say. Which also makes him once again, you know, a really good buddy for the pandemic. I mean, there's so many ways in which Thoreau is kind of getting us ready uh, for all of this without necessarily knowing that. Tracy Fullerton, a professor and director of the Game Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California, designer and director of Walden, a game. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I just like to close by saying one of the things that's really been striking me a lot lately is just the way in which online culture, social media, I mean, it, it has its virtues. But one of the things it's really bad at is context. People tend to latch on to one thing, like his mother did his laundry, but, but about anybody. And then if it's a good thing, then that's a good person. And if it's a bad thing, that's a bad person. And the, our whole information environment these days is not set up for looking at people in terms of a whole life, the way you just heard. Uh, it's really, really bad at context. It's really, really bad at looking at gradations of good and bad. So maybe it's one reason to do a radio show like this one. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to everybody who helped out. Uh, and uh, we will talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>